0: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic discussion of the sexual abuse of a child, which some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. If you suspect that a child in your life is being abused, you can call 1-800-422-4453 or visit childhelp.org for more information and resources. One night in the spring of 1996, 12-year-old Vili Folau slept over at his sixth-grade teacher's house. No one thought much of it at the time. Mrs. Letourneau told the preteen he showed great promise as an artist. She often invited him to her home so she could tutor him privately. That evening, her husband was away at work, and her children were already asleep upstairs. But 34-year-old Mary Kay Letourneau was not ready for bed. She wanted to watch Braveheart with Billy on the television in the den. Billy agreed to stay up and watch with her, but it didn't seem like Mrs. Letourneau was all that interested in Braveheart. She kept talking over the television, telling Billy how talented and special he was. She kept scooting closer to him on the couch. For any other 12-year-old boy, this behavior from his sixth-grade teacher would have been quite a shock. But Villy didn't have a normal relationship with Mrs. Letourneau. She treated him like an adult. She talked to him about her unhappy marriage and about how lonely she felt. As the forgotten television blared in the background, Mrs. Letourneau told Villy about a psychic reading she'd once received. The psychic said she'd have a hard life, but she would end up with a man with dark skin and would be happy. It wasn't lost on Vili that he, a Samoan American, had dark skin. As soon as she finished her story, Mrs. Laterno leaned over and kissed Vili on the lips. And after months of grooming and manipulation, Vili didn't resist. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram At Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on convicted child rapist Mary Kay Letourneau, who eventually married her victim and had two children with him. This week, we'll tell you about Mary Kay's early life, the psychological factors that may have led her to fixate on a child, and how she groomed Vili to accept her sexual advances. Next week, we'll take you through Mary Kay's time in jail and how even after serving time, she refused to stop praying on Vili Falau. We'll also report on how she, Vili, and their two daughters are doing today. Mary Kay Letourneau was born on January 30, 1962, in the wealthy conservative suburb of Tustin, California. Her father, John Schmitz, was a college professor. Mary Schmitz, her mother, left her career as a chemist after she married John to become a homemaker. Mary Kay was the fourth of her parents' seven children, but the first girl born into the large, boisterous, devoutly Catholic family. Friends who knew the Schmitzes during their time in Tustin remembered they were always praying. They said grace before every meal and never missed Mass. Religion also played a big role in the family's ideas about sex. When John Schmitz was elected to the California State Senate in 1964, he lobbied to curtail sexual education in schools. Instead of teaching students about condom use, he believed that self-discipline was enough to prevent teen pregnancy. In 1970, when Mary Kay was eight, John Schmitz moved from the State Senate to the U.S. Congress, The entire Schmitz family moved to Washington, D.C., where John quickly established himself as one of the most socially conservative voices on Capitol Hill. She was too young to fully understand her father's politics, but Mary Kay heard his speeches. She saw her mother standing beside her father on stage, agreeing that women should be subservient to their husbands. And in 1972, she watched her dad run for president, representing the far right American Independent Party, whose platform called for an end to the women's liberation movement. It didn't escape Mary Kay that her brothers received preferential treatment from their parents. The boys were expected to go on to college and have fabulous careers. Mary Kay's grades were as good as theirs, if not better. But her parents never talked to her about higher education. She was expected to be a wife, a mother, and nothing else. Before we continue with Mary Kay's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. A study by Jacqueline S. Eccles, Janice E. Jacobs, and Rena D. Harold showed that parents' gender stereotypes affect how they respond to their children's academic performance. For example, if parents with sexist beliefs see their son and daughter both make the honor roll, they might praise the boy for his bright potential. The girl, on the other hand, might be cautioned that she'll have trouble attracting a husband. In Mary Kay's case, the Schmitz's double standards left their daughter feeling unloved and unwanted. Mary Kay's distant relationship with her parents left her vulnerable at a critical moment. Around the time of her father's presidential campaign, 10-year-old Mary Kay was molested by one of her older brothers. She told a childhood friend about these incidents, but didn't reveal which brother was her attacker. According to the same childhood friend, Mary Kay never told her mother about the assault. She just tried to hide from her abuser whenever their parents were away. She shut herself in a closet or hid under the stairs, trying desperately not to attract attention. Later in life, after these claims were made public... Mary Kay revised the story she initially told her friend. She said that the molestation wasn't serious, and that when she asked her brother to stop, he did. But if Mary Kay's original story was accurate, it's possible she'd adopted a coping mechanism called minimization. Survivors of abuse or trauma sometimes tell themselves, and others, that their experiences were not important, and therefore they can minimize their emotions about them. One study by doctors at the Sackler School of Medicine found that minimization can actually be a good thing. It's associated with a lower suicide risk in psychiatric patients. However, it can also prevent people from seeking treatment to recover from trauma. Before she began minimizing her pain, Mary Kay carried it with her. Throughout her childhood, the abuse remained a secret from their family. After all, her father was busy with his campaign, which ultimately failed. After John Schmitz's unsuccessful third-party presidential bid, he left Congress, and the family moved back to California. On August 11, 1973, they threw a pool party to reconnect with friends from their old neighborhood. 11-year-old Mary Kay and her brother, 14-year-old Jerry, spent all afternoon in the pool. They both loved to swim. But somehow, neither of them noticed when their toddler brother, 3-year-old Philip, slipped in and sank like a stone. He was wearing a life preserver earlier in the day, but Mrs. Schmitz took it off so he could use the bathroom, Then she stepped into her office to look at some work and didn't notice when Philip returned to the party. When he fell into the pool, he didn't cry out or splash. By the time the adults noticed Philip was missing, it was too late for CPR. He was gone. No one blamed Mary Kay, at age 11, for failing to prevent the accidental death of her brother, but she was haunted by Philip's demise. If a woman's value lay mostly in her ability to care for and protect children, letting a sibling die on her watch was the ultimate failure. As she entered her teenage years, Mary Kay was careful not to give any outward sign of her internal turmoil and distress. She was a talented cheerleader, making the varsity squad at her elite Catholic high school three years in a row. But Mary Kay's low self-esteem showed through to those who knew her best. Sometimes she spent hours primping in the mirror for a casual day out with friends. A hair out of place or a single blemish could ruin her day. As she got older, she buried her unhappiness in a steady parade of boyfriends. Everyone wanted to go out with the peppy blonde cheerleader, but Mary Kay never got too close to any of them. They were interchangeable props in the show of perfection she was putting on. According to clinical psychologist Dr. Paul L. Hewitt, people who display self-oriented perfectionism are at risk for eating disorders, depression, suicide, and a host of other mental illnesses. It can also make seeking treatment for those conditions more difficult. Perfectionists are reluctant to discuss their flaws, Some seek counseling, but then tell the therapist that everything is fine. Mary Kay loved to be the center of attention. Whether cheerleading on the field or partying at college frat houses at the University of Southern California, she defied her strict Catholic upbringing, jumping in bed with a rotating cast of older guys. She approached sex the same way she approached cheerleading— It was a skill she intended to master by practicing it as much as possible. Her friends later said that a few of Mary Kay's boyfriends physically abused her. Others made no effort to hide how little they respected her. They joked about scrawling her name on bathroom walls. For a good time, call Mary Kay. But if being seen as a sex object by adult men bothered Mary Kay, she never let her family know. They hadn't protected her from her own brother. She couldn't expect them to help her navigate her teenage sexual relationships. They would just tell her to go to church and repent of her sins. By 1980, when 18-year-old Mary Kay enrolled in Orange Coast College, her identity was entirely wrapped up in three completely contradictory ideals. Her sexual escapades, her fantasies about her future as a wife and mother, and her adoration for her far-right ideologue father. Even as she flouted her dad's rules about premarital sex, Mary Kay was always the first to defend his politics. When John Schmitz was publicly accused of anti-Semitism, Mary Kay chased Jewish protesters off her front lawn by playing blaring German marching music. Privately promiscuous and publicly conservative, Mary Kay was a hypocrite. She didn't know it yet, but even in this, she was her father's daughter. While he preached traditional family values, John Schmitz had a mistress waiting for him at home. And when his infidelity was exposed, Mary Kay's world fell apart. Coming up... Mary Kay's image of her parents' perfect marriage shatters. Now back to the story. In 1981, 19-year-old Mary Kay Letourneau figured she'd keep studying at Orange Coast College until she met a husband worth settling down for. Until then, the only perfect man in her life was her father, conservative state senator and former third-party presidential candidate john schmitz mary Kay found it easy to overlook all of her father's flaws he wasn't always home but it wasn't because he didn't love his family it was because he was trying to help other people she had to share her father with the world because he was such a special brilliant man but in the summer of 1982 with absolutely no warning at all everything changed 20 year old Mary Kay saw her father's name splashed across the front page of the local newspaper. The headline read Mother arrested for child neglect, 13 month old victim, allegedly son of Senator Schmitz. This had to be some kind of misunderstanding. Her father believed that monogamous marriage was ordained by God, he loved his wife. But over the next few days, it became clear there was no mistake. Cornered by a police detective, Senator Schmitz admitted he'd fathered a son with his mistress, Carla Stuckel. He also made it clear that he wanted nothing to do with the boy. As Mary Kay watched in horror, even more revelations came out in the papers. There was a second, even younger baby. This one was a girl named Eugenie. John Schmitz held firm. He would play no role in the lives of either of his children with Carla Stuckel. After a prolonged court battle, he was forced to fork over just $275 per month in child support, or about $700 today. That wasn't enough to give his illegitimate children anything like the glitzy, upper-crust lifestyle his other kids enjoyed. Adding insult to injury, Senator Schmitz privately asked his mistress to put her son and daughter up for adoption. It would be easier for everyone, he said. The kids could grow up with two parents, and he wouldn't have to pay for their care anymore. It went against everything he espoused on traditional family values. Mary Kay never talked to her father about his affair, but her treasured image of him was gone. She'd been raised to believe she was only as valuable as the husband she could attract. Now, it would be hard to trust any man. It was all too much for 20-year-old Mary Kay. In the fall of 1982, she transferred to Arizona State University, just far enough from her family and her friends that she could start over. There, she might be able to meet a man who wouldn't ask about her parents' marriage on their first date. In Arizona, she made new friends, pledged a sorority, and started working as a waitress. She was still focused on finding a husband, but she started thinking about a career, too. She'd always liked being around children. Maybe she should become a teacher. Just a few months after starting at ASU, Mary Kay met Steve Letourneau at a frat party. As soon as he saw her, he refused to dance with anyone else all night. Mary Kay kept telling her girlfriends she just saw Steve as a guy to have some fun with, a placeholder, until Mary Kay met someone who was real husband material. But in 1984, when Mary Kay was 22, she became pregnant with Steve's child. She wanted to raise the baby alone in defiance of her Catholic upbringing, but she was afraid to tell her mother she was going to be a single parent, so she didn't breathe a word of her pregnancy to anyone besides Steve and her best friend. Not until one day as she was walking across campus, she looked down to see her legs covered in blood. Mary Kay rushed to the hospital, There, she tearfully called her mother. Poor Mrs. Schmitz learned that her daughter was pregnant and that she was having a miscarriage in one phone call. But there was even more shocking news to come. There were two babies. Mary Kay had only miscarried one. She was still pregnant. The instant she found out, Mrs. Schmitz ordered her daughter to marry Steve Letourneau, never mind that she wasn't in love with him. On June 30, 1984, the bride, now in her second trimester, walked down the aisle at Dahlgren Chapel on the campus of Georgetown University. It was the closest she ever got to attending an elite college like most of her brothers did. Her parents spared no expense for the wedding, but insisted that the pregnancy remain secret. Mary Kay didn't even tell her in-laws the newlyweds moved to Anchorage, Alaska to be closer to Steve's family. There, Stephen Jr. was born in the fall of 1984. Of course, everyone noticed that he wasn't premature enough to have been conceived after the wedding, but they just chuckled to themselves. They let the new parents think they'd gotten away with it. To support the family, Steve worked as a baggage handler. Mary Kay stayed home with her newborn son. It wasn't exactly the glamorous lifestyle to which she was accustomed, but Mary Kay vowed to make things work. In 1985, Alaska Airlines transferred Steve to the Seattle airport. The family settled in Kent, Washington, a working-class suburb, and 23-year-old Mary Kay applied to Seattle University. She intended to finish her degree and get a teaching credential. After all, Steve did his best, but he wouldn't be able to support a stay at home wife anytime soon, and Mary Kay had to reevaluate her own role in the family. She felt like a failure. All her parents ever asked of her was that she be a good Catholic and marry well. She hadn't done either, and try as she might, she still hadn't made herself fall in love with her husband. According to psychologist Dr. Levi Baker, one of the most common reasons to stay in a loveless marriage is an inability to imagine a better alternative. People who don't believe their future romances can improve won't leave their current relationship. After watching her parents cope with the dark secrets in their outwardly happy marriage, Mary Kay had trouble imagining herself doing better than Steve. Even if she met a guy she really loved, he might turn out to be a cheater, like her father. Mary Kay managed to turn her fear and shame into motivation at Seattle University. She might have failed at choosing a husband, but she was going to be the perfect student. She stayed up late, rocking her baby in one arm and turning the pages of her textbooks with the other. Previously, teaching had just been an idea. It was something to study until she met a husband who would support her. Now that she knew there would be no Prince Charming, her career became a driving passion. Her perfectionism from high school was back with a vengeance. She held herself to the highest standards in every class, but there were a lot of hoops to jump through to obtain a teaching credential and start earning a salary. After finishing her coursework, she'd have to do several internships for little or no money. Mary Kay started collecting her student teaching hours, first at a small private Catholic school. But Steve was getting tired of being the family's only wage earner. The couple fought over money often. They frequently had to ask his working-class family for cash just to keep the lights on at home. Then, in the winter of 1986, 24-year-old Mary got pregnant again. Mary Kay needed help now more than ever, but her parents refused to get involved. They didn't offer financial support or come to visit their grandson. They didn't even show up when, in the summer of 1987, Mary Kay gave birth to their second child, a daughter. Mary Kay was so embarrassed by her family's rejection, she started telling people that her father had died, so they wouldn't ask about him. Despite the distance from her family, Mary Kay named her daughter Mary Claire. The brand new baby girl shared the name Mary with generations of her matrilineal relatives, including her estranged grandmother, Mary Schmitz. Things started looking up again in September of 1988 when 26-year-old Mary Kay started her third student teaching job at Gregory Heights Elementary. This was her first position in the public school system. If she did well here, she could finally graduate and find permanent employment as a public school teacher. Mary Kay completed her third and final student teaching internship with much fanfare. Her enthusiasm for the classroom impressed her supervisors. She put real effort into designing her lessons. She asked intelligent questions of the senior teachers. Most importantly, her students adored her. When someone in a position of trust preys on children, it's easy to wonder if someone missed a warning sign. But in Mary Kay's case, it's likely there were none, at least not when she first started teaching. According to forensic criminologist Xanthi Mallet, female teachers who abuse adolescent male students are typically in their 30s. Before that age, there may be no red flags. In the spring of 1989, 27-year-old Mary Kay Letourneau graduated from Seattle University as a fully credentialed teacher. This achievement was, briefly, enough to bring her family back together, Both her parents attended her graduation. But there was no tearful reunion or reconciliation after the ceremony. Mary Kay received her degree and then quietly sat back down next to her mother. They didn't hug. A few hours later, the Schmitzes boarded a plane and headed home. By the time she was offered her first permanent teaching job in the summer of 1989, 27-year-old Mary Kay felt like the only people who loved her were the ones she'd created. She held her babies constantly. She never wanted them to feel like she did, unloved by the person who brought them into the world. She had no idea that she was about to take the first steps towards a future that would separate her from those beloved children and land her behind bars. Coming up, Mary Kay meets her victim. And now, back to the story. In the summer of 1989, 27-year-old Mary Kay Letourneau received an offer to teach second grade at Shoreditch Elementary School in Seattle. At the time, she was a mother of two trapped in a loveless marriage. Mary Kay hadn't intended to teach second grade. Her student teaching jobs were all with older children, but she couldn't afford to turn down work, so she decorated her second grade classroom with materials fit for eight-year-olds and welcomed her first crop of students. They loved her, as all children seemed to, She redesigned her lessons on the fly to keep them engaged. She brought in her fondness for arts and crafts, designing activities for every subject. She was less popular with her fellow teachers. Mary Kay was a little scatterbrained, waltzing into staff meetings late and forgetting to do essential paperwork. But she was a young mother, so the older teachers cut her plenty of slack. Maybe when her kids got older, she'd be more on top of things. Sometimes, Mary Kay taxed herself to the breaking point in her effort to be the most creative teacher at school. She adopted a classroom kitten just to illustrate a story she was reading to her students. When the novelty wore off, Mary Kay sent it away to a new home, but she was so overwhelmed and behind on work that she never got rid of the cat's supplies. The following year, her husband found a dirty litter box still sitting in her classroom full of moldy, year-old turds. And the new job didn't solve the Leterno’s financial problems either. Between them, they were now making over $60,000 a year, over $120,000 today, but the couple lived way beyond their means. Mary Kay couldn't stand not having the best. She bought name-brand clothing for her children. Steve hired help for basic household chores he could have done himself, and he owed money to the IRS. They kept borrowing from Steve's family, who by now were getting sick of picking up the phone. If they said no, Mary Kay got nasty. She insulted Steve's mother more than once and even talked back to his grandmother. Somehow, the couple muddled through the first three years of Mary Kay's teaching career, fighting constantly and bleeding money. Then, in 1991, 29-year-old Mary Kay was expecting again. In September of that year, Mary Kay's students got a thrill they'd remember for the rest of their lives. Their teacher went into labor in the middle of class. One of the children watching in awe as Mary Kay's water broke was a second-grade boy named Vili Falau. The seven-year-old was Samoan-American with brown skin and jet-black hair. He stood out in a school where, at the time, every teacher was white, and so were most of the students. If Mary Kay felt differently about Billy than her other students, she hadn't yet shown it. If anything, she felt pity towards him. His father was in prison. His single mother struggled to keep a roof over their heads. If Mary Kay thought of Villy at all when she went home at night, it was only to hope that he'd had enough to eat for dinner and that the lights were on at his house. And she almost certainly wasn't thinking of Villie in the whirl of excitement when she went into labor. From the children shouting and asking questions, to Steve racing through traffic to get his wife to the hospital, she felt like a celebrity. Mary Kay's third child was named Nicholas, and she doted on him. Every time she had a baby, it felt like another, brand new chance to unmake all her parents' mistakes. They were all beautiful. So beautiful that they got away with a lot of mischief when they were little, like running out the door and racing around the condo building naked. Nobody could stay mad at the Letourneau children. But inevitably, no matter how good her intentions, Mary Kay always found her life slipping back into chaos. She forgot to pay her babysitters, and sometimes came home hours later than she promised. The house was always a mess, and she fought with Steve in front of the kids. Worse yet, Mary Kay was already repeating her mother's biggest flaw. She favored her eldest son, Stephen, over her daughter, Mary Claire. Many mothers have a special bond with their first child, but this was more than that. She practically made seven-year-old Stephen into a surrogate partner, asking him how her outfits looked and taking him on all-day shopping excursions to Nordstrom's. Psychologist Dr. Kenneth Adams pioneered the concept of covert incest, a term for a relationship between parent and child that has characteristics more typical of a romantic partnership. For example, the parent might share details of her sex life with the child or coach them to take on a caregiving therapeutic role in her life. Covert incest doesn't necessarily involve sexual abuse, but survivors are left feeling like they didn't get a real childhood. They were too busy playing the role of a parent's spouse. If she was overly intimate with her eldest son, Mary Kay was quite the opposite with her only daughter. She worried that Mary Claire would get fat. The three-year-old's diet was strictly controlled. It seems like at this stage, Mary Kay's self-oriented perfectionism morphed into other-oriented perfectionism. She didn't just want to be flawless herself. Now she held her toddler daughter to the same high standards. Mary Claire responded by hiding in the arms of her father. She grew more and more distant from her mother. Mary Kay must have noticed that she was driving her second child away, but she couldn't stop. When she looked at her daughter, all she saw were her shortcomings. To compensate for her feelings of failure, in 1992, Mary Kay convinced Steve to buy a fixer-upper house in the ritzy neighborhood of Normandy Park. They never scraped together enough money to spruce it up, and the house was still in disrepair in 1993, when 31-year-old Mary Kay became pregnant with her fourth child with Steve. In late December, Mary Kay gave birth to Jacqueline Letourneau. That fourth and final child finally tipped over the Letourneau's financial house of cards. In May of 1994, the Letourneau's filed for Chapter 13 bankruptcy, they had a house full of designer toddlers' clothing and brand new bicycles for the older kids, but their bankruptcy forms listed more than $50,000 of debt. They were juggling past-due utility bills and hanging onto the house by the barest of threads. If either of the Laternos lost their job now, they could easily find themselves homeless with four children. By September of 1995, 33-year-old Mary Kay's only refuge was in her classroom, where at last she was teaching sixth grade, like she always wanted. She was determined to demonstrate that her students were the best in the entire school. In the early 1990s, the U.S. Department of Education declared that American schools were failing gifted students teachers were urged to identify their most talented pupils and set them aside for special programs where they could work at their own level rather than being held back by average classmates. By 1995, it was gospel among public school teachers that gifted students must be identified and educated separately. Mary Kay followed that doctrine, setting aside a special round table in her classroom for the students she deemed gifted. There, she paid extra attention to her favorites. In September of that year, the round table included 12 year old Vili Falau. Now in sixth grade, he showed an exceptional talent for drawing. Mary Kay was barely out of bankruptcy court herself, but she started buying art supplies for Billy out of her own pocket. Villy became something of a celebrity at Shorewood Elementary. Students gathered around to watch him draw his own versions of famous paintings. He could copy almost any picture set in front of him. Mary Kay was entranced by Billy's art. She told herself that getting more and more involved in his life was just the standard for a gifted student like him. To anyone else at Shorewood, Billy was an ordinary 12-year-old boy with a gift. But sometime between September of 1995 and the spring of 1996, Mary Kay started seeing him as an adult man with an old soul. Of course, that wasn't true. He had the same interests and hobbies as any other adolescent. He liked tennis shoes and working on the school yearbook. He enjoyed sitting by himself and drawing. There was nothing unusually mature about him. In her book, Bad Boys, Afro-American studies professor Ann Ferguson argued that black boys are adultified in white-dominated society. At an age when a white child might be described as participating in boyish mischief for shoplifting candy, a black boy could be arrested and sent to jail as a criminal. Villy wasn't black, but he was one of the few non-white boys Mary Kay had ever interacted closely with. She later said that his brown skin and Samoan facial features played a big role in her attraction to him. From Mary Kay's perspective, she was a helpless victim of her growing, passionate attraction to her 12-year-old student. But from a psychological perspective, she was a sexual predator, fitting into the heterosexual nurturer subcategory of female offenders. As first defined by psychologist Donna Vandiver, this category includes women, mostly in their 30s, who offend against boys with whom they have a parental or quasi-parental relationship. These sexual predators, like Mary Kay, often believe they are in love with children. Over the winter of 1995 and into the spring of 1996, Mary Kay continued to groom Billy. She invited him to her home and introduced him to her children. She demanded that her family praise his art to make him feel comfortable. Whenever she could, she spent time alone with him. Just like she had with her oldest son, she shared inappropriate details of her life with Billy. After months of slowly breaking down the boundaries that separated teacher and student, Mary Kay escalated her inappropriate behavior into sexual abuse. In June of 1996, 34-year-old Mary Kay invited 12-year-old Villy to stay overnight at her house while her husband was away on business. When her children went to sleep, she kissed Villy on the couch in her den. Mary Kay later feigned helplessness when describing that night. She said she didn't understand why she hadn't stopped with just a kiss. But her behavior with Vili had been leading up to this sexual interaction for months by treating him like a boyfriend. This was no unexpected, impulsive decision. When Vili responded to the kiss, as Mary Kay had conditioned him to do, she took things further. With her own children asleep in their upstairs bedrooms, Mary Kay raped her sixth-grade student. In one night... Mary Kay rewrote Billy Falau's entire future. He would never have a real first kiss or lose his virginity with a girl his own age. He wouldn't get to decide which of his classmates to ask to prom or which sorority girls to flirt with in college. From that moment forward, he would spend all his free time trying to meet the emotional and sexual needs of a 34-year-old mother of four. And he'd been so well-groomed by his abuser that for decades to come, he'd think he was doing it willingly. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of our deep dive into the case of Mary Kay Letourneau, where we'll explore her twisted relationship with Billy Falau and her time in prison. For more information on Mary Kay Letourneau, we found Greg Olson's book, If Loving You Is Wrong, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type female criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Yelena War. I'm Vanessa Richardson.